morning, we are going to be concluding our series that we've called A Kingless Kingdom, a series in the book of Judges, and we're going to do that this morning by stepping outside of the book of Judges um, and into the book of Samuel as we see the kind of final days of the Judges. Um, now, as we've gone through the book of Judges, we've um, seen just the constant and perpetual, it seems, and just over and over, uh, failure of the Israelites. Um, we, we've seen that failure through the failure of judges to uh, appropriately judge and rule and, and lead Israel. We've seen it uh, most recently in the Levites, the, the priests, the ones who should have been leading uh, the people in, in worship of their great God, and we saw them failing as well. And we've heard that refrain, that refrain that's so popular from the book of Judges that the book of Judges ends on in Judges 21 in those days. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Let's pray and dive into God's word together. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, um, we ask that you would be present with us, uh, that you would help us to ultimately today uh, see uh, King Jesus, that we would see him at the same time we would see um, our often unwillingness to bend our knee uh, before him, and would you bring us uh, to our great King this day, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. As, as I was preparing and, and thinking through, and, and really, uh, the sermon this morning is on the whole of First and Second Samuel, so strap in, um, but as I was thinking through this, I, I, I was reminded of, of Les Mis. You, you may have seen the movie or the, the, the musical or, or, or read the book, and the story begins with Jean Valjean, he's um, imprisoned with, uh, he's been in for a long sentence as the result of stealing bread um, for his starving family. And he tries to escape, and as a result, his, his sentence keeps increasing. Finally, he's out after many, many years. And he's out, and he has nowhere to go, and he can't find any place to go, and it's a nasty night, it's raining, and he is brought in by this bishop who, who brings him and welcomes him into his house. And he feeds him. And he gives him a place to stay uh, for the night. Incredibly gracious and merciful to him. And then in the middle of the night, he wakes up. And when he, when he wakes up, he's reminded and he remembers that the six sets of silver with which dinner had been served. He's reminded of that silver and he thinks, I could get a lot of money with that silver. And so he goes and he sneaks into the bedroom of the sleeping bishop who'd been so gracious and merciful to him steals the silver, and jumps out the window, taking off with it. Now, as, as I was thinking about that, I, I, I couldn't help but, but think of Israel. Some ways so similar. God has been so gracious with Israel. He, he came to them and he, he rescued them out of slavery. He, he, he brought them across the Red Sea. He, he, he took them to the promised land, feeding them, uh, giving them drink, taking care of their needs, taking them to the promised land, this land filled with milk and honey, and in the days of Joshua, begins to give it over to them, right? Gives them victory, and, and, and taking over the land, God was so gracious, so merciful with Israel. But then, what do the Israelites do? They, they in a sense, they steal from the one, kind of like Jean Valjean, steal from the one who's been so merciful and gracious to him, and, and they decide to go their own way and do their own thing, and that's what we've seen as we've gone through the book of Judges. 
We've seen these dark days where Israel has decided to to go their own way and seemingly forgot the incredible kindness and mercy and grace that has been shown to them by their great God, Yahweh. And they just fail to see it and they just go their own way. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's the story we've seen of Israel just kind of going down the drain, right? And it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. But as the book of Judges ends, the days of the Judges aren't quite over. Because as you turn to to 1 Samuel, you see that the days of the Judges continue. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, we read this. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Now, who is Eli? Eli was a priest, but, but as we find in the book of Samuel, he was also a judge. And he judged Israel for 40 years. But we already see that the, the bad things and the negative things that we're reminded of from judges, they're, they're continuing in Israel. It seems as though things haven't suddenly got better as we move into the book of Samuel. His sons were selfishly taking the things that the people brought uh, to, to be sacrificed, and they were selfishly just taking what they wanted. And Eli, he does, he sort of tries to be a good priest, I guess, and he goes to them and he chastises them for improperly using the sacrifices that were brought. But you know what he doesn't do? He doesn't stop his sons from what they're doing. They just go off and they continue. They just continue to take and take and take. And so God sends a prophet to Eli, and he says this in verse 29, chapter 2, Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I've commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me? This is what they say to to Eli. And as a result, Eli is is basically removed. God says, I I reject you. Okay, Your your sons aren't going to continue in your line. And we see already in the book of Samuel, kind of the theme of Judges kind of continues. Things aren't getting better. The, the Judge Eli doesn't seem to be doing much better than the others. And as we move to chapter 4, it continues as well. The, the Philistines come to battle against the Israelites in the days of Eli, okay? And, and the Israelites are defeated by the Philistines. And now, in verse 3, we read this. The, 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 the Israelites, they come back together. And they begin to ask the question, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? They they ask the question, why? Why why do we lose? I mean, don't we have God on our side? We're the Israelites, right? And they seem to completely fail to take into consideration the fact that what? They haven't been following this God. They haven't been worshiping him. they, They have all sorts of idols back at home, and they're wondering why they just lost the battle. So what do they do? Do you see the great idea they have? They say, let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. What's going on here? Israel thinks that they can use God as what? It's like a lucky charm. They feel like they can just bring out the Ark of the Covenant and God's going to give them victory in battle over the Philistines. Right? You know, maybe they're kind of reminded of what happened to the Battle of Jericho, you know, and they, where the ark was brought out in the midst of the battle. But that's not what they're doing here. They weren't commanded to do this. What are they doing? They're, they're trying to manipulate God. They're just treating him like some sort of lucky charm. And as I think through that, I, you know, we can't help but think of the ways that we do similar things, right? Sometimes do you ever use God like he's a lucky charm 
you, 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 you try to manipulate him in some way or another. Uh, I remember back in my ninth grade of high school, my grandparents got in a terrible car accident. And I remember, I even remember where I was sitting in my backyard. And I remember trying to make a deal with God. God, if, if you'll make my grandma better, then I'm going to do all these things for you. I'm going to become a much better Christian. I'm going to read your Bible. I'm going to do, you know, I started making a deal of all the things that I was going to do. I was very childish in my faith, thinking somehow that I could manipulate God into doing what I wanted. And it doesn't work. That's not how we're, we're made to be. And now, now we can go and we can try to manipulate God like that, or let's not miss the, the reverse is kind of also true. That, that we kind of treat God like a lucky charm also when we don't trust him. Do you know what I mean by that? You know, where, where we think, God, I, I, you get in some sort of situation and, and a, maybe a loved one gets very sick. Maybe your child gets very sick, whatever it is. And you think, well, God, why? I, I've been so faithful to you. I've been so faithful to you. And yet again, just see what you're doing. There too, thinking somehow you can manipulate God, that you can try to get out of him what you want. And that's what the Israelites are doing here. Trying to manipulate him. The the same old stuff is happening as we move into the book of Samuel. And to make a long story short, that what what ends up happening, the Philistines actually end up capturing the Ark of the Covenant, right? And they have taken off now. We're not getting on the details, but they end up giving it back to Israel. They didn't want any part of it whenever bad things started happening to them. But when Eli, the judge, whenever he hears what's happening, verse 18, chapter 4, as soon as he mentioned the ark, as soon as he heard about what happened to the ark, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He judged Israel for 40 years. And that's the end of the judge, Eli. Israel's trajectory, they're they're still going down. That they're still going down the drain in those days. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's into the, this dark continuance. This, the, these dark days in Israel, this dark days of the judges, what does God do? He sends in one final judge. One final judge comes in. And you may remember his dramatic birth story at the beginning of 1 Samuel Hannah's praying, you know, that she could just have a child, and if she does, she'd give him to the Lord's service. And the baby Samuel is born. What does she do? She goes and she takes him and she gives him over at, the, at God's house and gives him over to, strangely enough, oddly enough, Eli, the, the, the judge that we were just talking about, the priest, and gives him over to Eli to bring him up in the house of the Lord. Now, though Eli may have been raising him, he... He grows and matures in a very different way than did Eli's other worthless sons. Chapter 2, verse 26, now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with men. And then in chapter 3, the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. Listen to this. As Samuel emerges, what was rare in those days, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. And into this place where there seems to be a dearth of, of, of anybody who, who follows Yahweh, what, who emerges, but we have Samuel emerge. And at the end of, towards the end of chapter 3, we read this, and Samuel grew 
and the Lord was with him. And let none of his words fall to the ground. And get this, all of Israel. Remember, up till now in the book of Judges where, you know, it's like, it's all these disparate tribes and different judges ruling over different tribes. And here we read that all of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as the prophet of the Lord. So into the darkness of the time of the judges enters Samuel. And then, to move through the book of Samuel, there's suddenly a darkness of like 20 years where we don't know what happened. Darkness from the time that, that Eli died. And whenever we begin to read in chapter 7, Likely during this time, Samuel is out faithfully doing what he's been doing. This is how he becomes well-known, if you will, by the people, by sharing the word of the Lord throughout all of Israel. And then we read in chapter 2. From that day, the ark was lodged at kareth Jerem. A long time passed. This is that 20 years. And look what, what results after 20 years. All the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. These may seem like just a few words and seemingly insignificant, but they're incredibly striking, especially coming out of the book of Judges and, and, and tracing through the path that Israel has been on because something radically different is suddenly at work. The book of Judges, we, we saw the Israelites do what? They would cry out to God. Why were they crying out to God? Because they wanted God to come rescue them. Often and usually, they, they weren't repenting. They, they, they weren't apologetic for their sins. They just wanted God to come rescue them. But something very different is going on here. It seems as though the Israelites have, are now spiritually alive again. It's amazing. They, 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 they seem not to want something from Yahweh, but they want Yahweh. It seems as in this moment, they want God. They want Him. And it's into this moment that, that Samuel steps in as this, this kind of last judge, and, and he steps in as a judge very different from the ones we're used to from the books, book of Judges because he, he steps in, and his concern isn't so much about the externalities. He, he's not so concerned with, with Israel's enemies, the Philistines or whatever. That's not his primary concern. What is his concern? His concern is internal. His concern is the insidious internal enemy of Israel, their idolatrous hearts. And so what does he say? How does he respond as, as the Israelites begin to lament after the Lord? He says this, with all the house of Israel gathered, he says, if you, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashereth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. You see, Samuel seems to be concerned to make sure that this is genuine. That, that this is real repentance, that this is real lamenting before the Lord. He, he wants to make sure this isn't just some emotional moment of the Israelites. Is the repentance genuine? You know, are, they, are they just saying sorry? Or, or are they truly repenting? One, one author kind of talking about this forgiveness, repentance stuff says this. says it's important to differentiate between saying I'm sorry and please forgive me. Is there a difference? Just ask the victim. When we say we are sorry, we communicate that we feel bad about something. We sadly realize that we have been the cause of another plane. This is a crucial part of repentance. But merely feeling sorry falls short of taking full responsibility for having done wrong. 
It may only communicate that I regret that the other person has been hurt. Far too often, saying I'm sorry is motivated by wanting to get off the hook rather than to fully acknowledge, rather than fully acknowledging and accepting responsibility for a real wrong committed when we ask for forgiveness. We go beyond communicating sorrow or regret. We see ourselves and our indebtedness accurately, and what do we do? We ask for mercy. That's what Samuel wants to make sure of. Are the Israelites here, are they just saying sorry? Are they truly repenting? Are they sorrowful for the way that they have injured their great God? Are they coming to him and asking for mercy? And what do we see of the Israelites? Verse 4, so the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Asheroth, and they served the Lord only. And Samuel said, gather all of Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah, and they drew water, and they poured it out before the Lord, and they fastened on that day and set, fasted on that day. And said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. This is an incredibly beautiful moment. After coming out of the darkness of the book of Judges, we have sinned against the Lord. It's an incredible moment. The last time we've seen anything similar, kind of in the book of, middle of the book of Judges, there was this moment of of repentance that looks a little similar, but, but here we have all of Israel repenting before their God. And it doesn't end there because the Philistines come back out against the Israelites. How is Israel going to respond? Have they, have they really changed? Are they really any different? The, the ones who, who not too long ago wanted God as, a, as a, some sort of lucky charm to put around their neck or something, some, some good luck bracelet? The Philistines come back out, but what do the people do this time? Verse 8. <laughs> they go to Samuel. And they said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that he that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. The language that God had been longing for, in a sense, uh, throughout the book of Judges, it's finally being said again by the Israelites, you will save us. So Samuel took a nursing lamb. He offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord, and Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was, was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and he threw them into confusion and they were defeated before Israel. What did God do? God went to battle for them and he rescued them. He was again their great king. Those who had been living as kingless were now again willing to submit themselves again to the true king. And so what does Samuel do? Verse 12, Samuel took a stone He set it up between Mizpah and Shen, and he called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now, the Lord has helped us. This Ebenezer, this moment, it's it's been to be a, a reminder, the stones there, a reminder of God's rescue of them, how the Lord had helped them. And of course, this works its way into a very famous hymn, doesn't it? Come thou fount, here I raise my Ebenezer. Here, by thy great help, I've come. This is where that comes from. This is a moment for the Israelites. Samuel saying, look, remember what the Lord has done for you here, how he has helped 
you. I'm reminded uh, back to Les Mis and Jean Valjean. After he left with the silver, very quickly he was caught. And what did he tell the, the, the police who caught him? They said, he, he told them, the bishop, he gave them to me. And the police are, of course, like, there's no way the bishop gave you his silver. That, that is ridiculous. And so they, they march him to the bishop's house. And what does the bishop say? Oh, yeah, of course I did. Yeah, I gave it to him. And then he looks at Jean Valjean and he says, Jean Valjean, why didn't you take the candlesticks? Do you realize how much they are worth? They're probably worth like at least 200 francs. I, I, you should have, I told you to take them too. And he goes over to Jean Valjean and he takes the candlesticks. And he says, here you are, your candlesticks, take them. And he says, don't forget. Never forget. You promised to use this money to become an honest man. And Jean Valjean's sitting there thinking, I didn't promise anything. What are you talking about, man? You're, you're crazy, right? And the bishop continued, Jean Valjean, my brother, you are no longer owned by evil, but by good. It's your soul that I'm buying. I'm redeeming it from dark thoughts and the spirit of perdition. I'm giving it to God. Jean Valjean left there just completely like not knowing what in the world to do. What was certain, what he was sure of, was that he was no longer the same man. He was completely changed within. It was no longer in his power to act as though the bishop had not spoken to him and had not touched him. Jean Valjean wept for a long time. He wept burning tears. He sobbed more defenseless than a woman, more frightened than a child. And as he wept, his mind was flooded with light, an extraordinary light, a light once ravishing and terrible. You, you see the incredible mercy and grace that was shown to Jean Valjean by that bishop was his undoing. And as you follow through like the rest of the book, those candlesticks, they're always there. Those candlesticks are there as a reminder of the graciousness and mercy that the bishop had for him. They were, in a sense, an Ebenezer for him. For the Israelites, these stones are to, 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 to be a similar function, a, a reminder of what their great God did for them, how he had been their help. Everything, as you're reading through the book of Samuel, everything seems to be back on track. The Israelites are finally, they're, they're, they're worshiping their great God again. They're following him. They're, they're seeking after him. When we read Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life and, and we think we're going to end on a wonderful moment. As we see Samuel, this, this individual who is a type of, you know, as we, as we speak about these things, a type of Christ. As he was leading the people constantly back to their great God the one who is to be their king. He pictures, of course, an even greater judge, Jesus Christ, who has come to lead his people. And it would be wonderful if the story ended there, but we have to turn the page to chapter 8. Samuel's getting old. He's judged Israel well. 
And he begins to think, well, maybe my sons would be a good replacement for him, you know, because who's going to judge Israel? Who's going to rule Israel when Samuel is done? And Samuel rightfully had done a good job and had even brought some unity to Israel. But his sons were like the sons of Eli. They were not very good guys, to say the least. And so all the other, we read in verse 4, all the elders of Israel gathered together and they came to Samuel. And they say to Samuel, behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. Now, just as a reminder, uh, our, our series that we've been going through that we're concluding today has been called A Kingless Kingdom, right? B- because in the, day, in the days of the book of of judges, the, the Israelites were acting as though they had no king. And it wasn't because they didn't have an earthly king. They had a heavenly king. They had the king that rules over all. But they failed and refused to, to bend their knee to him. And yet in the days of Samuel, what do we seem to suddenly see? But a people willing to submit to their king. Willing to submit to Yahweh as king. That's what we saw in chapter 7. But then things seem to change as they're suddenly asking for a different king, a king who's like all the nations. Now we need to ask, is this a good idea? Now, to be in a little bit of defense, at least of the Israelites, um, this whole king idea, let's not forget, it's ultimately God's idea for Israel. Okay, so so in that case, Israel was right. Uh, God had even spoken to, to Moses and given him laws about this is how your king should rule. When you get to the land and you have kings, this is what they should look like. God had promised the scepter to Judah, right? God wanted Israel to have a king. So Israel's not wrong in in that regard. And they did need somebody to rule over them, right? And Samuel's sons certainly were no good. The problem problem was what was behind their request. First of all, I I think there's this idea that they didn't want to be weird. They didn't want to be weird. You see, here they are, here's Israel, and, and they're amongst all these other nations, and what do all the other nations have? They all have kings. And everybody's looking at Israel like, why don't y'all have kings? That's what you're supposed to have. Sometimes we can not like the fact that we look a little weird. But if you're in Christ, you're, you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You're aliens living in a foreign land. And you're going to look different. You should look different from the world around you. So that's Israel's first problem. But the, the, that isn't even really their major problem. The, the, the real problem comes, as we see, as Samuel takes this request to God, like, I, I don't know what to do with this. And what does God say? Verse 7, Obey the voice of the people in all that they have said, For they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. That's the real problem. That's what's at the heart of the issue. Those who back in chapter 7 had finally been willing to submit themselves to the one true king, they're suddenly moving back to the days of the judges. A day where there is no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But God willingly, he gives them what they want, right? He gives them what they want, but, but Samuel does give him a warning. And we won't, we won't read all of this, but, but, but Samuel gives the people a warning. He says, okay, I'll give you your judges. 
But you know what they're going to do? And if you, you read over the text from verses 11 and following, you, you'll see a word that recurs. He says, the kings, I'll give you a king, but you know what the kings are going to do? They're going to take, and they're going to take, and they're going to take, and they're going to take. That's what the kings are going to do. They're going to take from you. They're going to take, and they're going to take, and they're going to take. And what ends up happening is, as you proceed on, God gives them Saul, right? He gives them who they think they would want. I mean, he looks great. He's a head taller than everybody else. He's exactly who you'd want. He does bring some unity to Israel and brings them all under, as one nation, and it starts out well. But ultimately, what happens? Saul turns away, doesn't he? He, he turns away from, from his great God. He wants to be his own king. <laughs> he doesn't want to be a king who is ruled by a greater king. And that's what the king of Israel's, kings of Israel were supposed to be, right? They, they were meant to be viceroyalty. They were meant to be kings, yes. But kings who were under a greater, greater king. Saul turns away from God, and so what does God do? God brings us King David, right? First Samuel goes out, you, you remember the story, he goes out and he, he looks at the sons and he, he thinks, well, it's got to be this oldest one, it's got to be this best one, and what does God say? The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, that's why Saul looks so good, right? But the Lord, the Lord looks at the heart. Know something different about King David, right? Now we think of King David, many of our minds, we immediately think of what? His sin, and those great sins that he struggled with. But let's not forget what we also hear from King David. As Scripture describes him as a man who is after God's own heart, we, we see that David constantly, even though he is the king, what does he point to? over and over again. What, what do you read as you, as you read the Psalms that he wrote? Who does he constantly point to? He doesn't constantly point to himself as the great king. He points Israel to the one true king. And that's what we see him doing over and over. David is pointing to the one true king. And what does God do? God promises David something in 2 Samuel. He says, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God promises to David that his family, there would be somebody on the throne, there's going to be an eternal king from his, from his lineage. Now, this is important because when this was written, Israel was likely in shambles. We don't know exactly when the book of Samuel was written, but it's certainly after the kingdoms have already divided. Things have gone bad. Suddenly you at least have, you have all these bad kings, right? And, and, and you seem to be almost, you have kings now, but you're kind of almost back, moved more and more back to the days of the judges. And it's written to the original people who would be hearing this to remind them hope. Hope in the great king that's coming. The great king that's going to sit on the throne of David forever. Hope in the great Messiah who is going to come. And of course, we know of the coming of that Messiah, don't we? We, we know of the coming of, of the king who is far greater than King David. 
And what's amazing is that king came. He didn't come to take, 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 did he? For even, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, not to take, 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 but he came to give. And what did the Israelites do with him? What did the priests, the ones who who should have been leading Israel, what did they say of this great king who had finally come, the Messiah, the the one who who wasn't consumed with himself but was, was coming to give? And to give his very own life as a ransom for many? Pilate asked them, Shall I crucify your king? And what did they say? We have no king but Caesar. How sad. (laughs) The days of judges hasn't ended, has it? So sad. Story we've seen throughout the book of Judges. In fact, it kind of continues to be a story and a theme we see throughout Scripture. And I fear, too, it may be a theme that we see in our very own lives. A theme of, okay, we know that there is a king, but we go and we live as so often as if there is no king. You know, we're, he- we're here this morning. I think most of you have come this morning because because you believe that there is a great king who has come, Jesus Christ, the one who came to be a ransom for many, who came to go to the cross for you and I so that we could have eternal life, so that we could be united with him. And yet, no doubt, if we think through our week, you could mention many, many times, no doubt, of when you rejected the great king. When you say, I, I know God says that, but I really want to do that. I really think things would be better if. I, I think maybe I, in this case I know a little better than God does. I mean, come on, the Bible was written how long ago? And Oh, we constantly reject the king, don't we? What do we do with this? And, and is there anything that all of this teaches us and maybe... Maybe we should reflect back on what, what, what the Israelites should have done in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Instead of going, we need a king like all the other nations, what should they have done? I think they should have been reminded of that Ebenezer. They should have been reminded of that moment where they dethroned themselves again and they enthroned the rightful ruler over them. Their great God and their great king, the true king, the great king. They should have been reminded of the incredible victory that he had won for them, what he had done for them, that he keeps his promises to them if they'll just submit themselves to him. You and I, as we're gathered here this morning, please don't miss the great king that is before us. The the, the great king who's unlike any others, the the one who, who humbled himself And became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Who who did not come taking, 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 but came giving for even 
The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. When Jean Valjean was on his deathbed, he begins to kind of make out his final bequests of what he wants to give to whom and those kind of things. And he says, the two candlesticks, the two candlesticks that the bishop had given him. He said, the two candlesticks on the mantelpiece I give to Cosette. Cosette is his daughter for all practical purposes. He says, they're silver, but for me, they're gold. For me, they're diamond candlesticks. They turn ordinary candles placed in them into hallowed candles. I don't know whether the person up there, thinking of the bishop, who gave them to me is pleased with me. I've done what I could. Now we see a little bit of works righteousness working in there for for Jean Valjean at the end. But his life was one that was transformed by the grace and the mercy of the bishop so long ago. And as he looked at the candlesticks, there was nothing more beautiful. Because he looked at them, he couldn't forget the incredible mercy and grace that had been bestowed upon him. You and I, we're so tempted to forget what Christ has done for us. So tempted to forget that he is our great king. In a moment, we have the privilege of, of coming to this table, which is in a sense an, an Ebenezer for us, a place for us to be reminded of what the great king has done for us, the great king who, who gave of his, his own self to give us life, the great king who has shown such incredible grace and mercy towards us. And yet, we can be so tempted to forget. Can I encourage us? Can I encourage us to work on our forgetfulness by being constantly and daily reminded of the gospel? We must remind ourselves every day. We, we, We can't let days and times and hours go by that we're not reminded of what the great King has done for us. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Here by thy great help I've come. And I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. Do you know that to be true today? Do you know that the great king pursued you when you were but a stranger? When you were off wandering, purchasing you with his own blood? Do you know the truth of what the great king has done for you? And is it changing you? Is it molding you? Does it stand as an Ebenezer every single day before you, as as silver candlesticks before you? Reminding you of the incredible grace and mercy 
of your great king who brought you in when you're out in the cold and who fed you and who gave you a roof over, his head, over your head, if you will, who's been so incredibly gracious and merciful to you. Do you, this morning, do you believe and trust in that great king? Do you? Let's pray. Oh, Father, you know only too well how quick we are to forget. How quick we are to fall back into the pattern of the the book of Judges, to live as our own king, with our own kingdom, doing what is right in our own eyes. And yet you, (laughs) the great king who has been so utterly betrayed, has come offering to us forgiveness and life and union with you. Would you first help our hearts to believe more and more the truth of this good news? And would you help to transform us more and more each day by the good news of the wonder of the gospel of our Savior Jesus Christ, the great King who came not to serve, who who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Would you help us to believe and our lives to be more and more transformed by the truth? We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.